0: assurance at all that they're going to be open to reconciliation. Um, I, I tell people all the time, you know, you need to go and make it right, but be prepared. They may not receive it well. Uh, you have this vision of uh, they're going to fall into your arms sobbing, and, y'all are gonna, and that may be what happens. That may be what happens, but it may also not be what happens. So just do the right thing and leave the results to God. That's what you do, do the right thing. So Jacob is making an effort to do the right thing, but he's scared, rightfully so. He divides his family in reverse order of importance to him. Just think about that, the slave women and their children, his sons by them, and then Leah and her children, and then at the back, which would mean more protected, was uh, Rachel and her son Joseph. So, Scripture tells us in the first three verses that Jacob goes out and he bows seven times in front of his brother. Seven times. That's a lot. You ever bowed seven times in front of anybody? I I doubt it. Seriously. Uh, He bowed to Esau. And how ironic, because Scripture says in chapter 27, verse uh, 29, that your brother's going to bow before you. And, And in a sense, that is happening. But right now, it's ironic because Jacob's bowing. Before Esau, and he is expressing his sorrow over the theft of Esau's blessing. So now we're at verse 4 of chapter 33, and I'm going to read the verse 4 through 11. So here he's bowed down seven times, all the way to the ground. So I don't know, got down on his knees. Uh, it sounds like it. Verse 4, here's Esau's reaction. But Esau ran to meet Jacob. And embraced him. Wow. That says a lot about how God is orchestrating this. That's irritating. Let me see if we can. Uh, God is orchestrating this. It also says something about Esau's heart. His willingness to forgive his brother. He embraced him, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. That's what it is Prayer—that's what Jacob hoped would happen. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. "Who are these with you?" he asked. You know, it's kind of like you had not seen a relative in a long time. You look around and look at the kids. It looks like looks like their kids or their grandkids. You know, Who are all these kids? Well, that's what Esau is saying. Who are all these people? And Jacob answered, "They are the children God has graciously given your servant." Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel came, and they too bowed down. And Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I've already got plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, no, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God." Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that this that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Wow, that's that's an amazing picture. Um, uh, if we could, but I could dig into all that Jacob's thinking and all that Esau's thinking at this moment, but let's just let it let the words speak for themselves. The brothers embraced. They wept. Uh, Esau makes no mention of the past at all. None at all. It's remarkable. And it's what's happening is definitely an answer to the prayer of Jacob from the last chapter in the 11th verse. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. God heard and answered that prayer. And Jacob introduces his family. And uh, Esau, in, in, in these words from Jacob, Esau, is introduced to Israel, the genesis of God's chosen people. Jacob said, I've seen the face of God in you, for you have accepted me, and you have forgiven me. Seeing God's face at Peniel, we read about earlier, and seeing Esau's face are connected. Esau accepts Jacob's gifts after some protestation, and the reconciliation is complete. And Jacob had joyfully paid the price for all that had happened prior to this day. Now, Esau wants Jacob to come with him, come meet my family, come let's have a reunion, let's all get together. And Jacob says, sure, you go on ahead, I'll get, I've, you know, I've got lots of pregnant uh, sheep, so give me a little time. I don't, if I run them too hard, then they'll lose the babies or the mothers will die. Blah, 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 blah. It's just words that Jacob's using because he has no intention of going with Esau anywhere. So you look at that and you think, well, why didn't you just, why didn't you just say it instead of hedging the truth? And is he afraid that Esau will change his mind? Or is there another reason? I think there's another reason. To follow Esau is to go outside of the country where Jacob is supposed to go. And so by following Esau, Jacob would be, in a sense, turning his back on what God had told him to do. And so it may have been a multiplicity of reasons for Jacob not to follow Esau, but Certainly one obvious one is that to have followed Esau would have been almost like an act of disobedience to God. So uh, Jacob does a following. So let's go to verse 12. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. Yeah, here this is what I just talked about. Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender, and that I must care for the ewes and the cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard, just one day all the animals will die. Maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but you know, all of the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir, where Esau lived. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Sukkot where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock and that is why the place is called Sukkot um, which means shelter or shelters so Jacob and Esau separate Uh, Esau Esau goes to Seir. says come with me Jacob doesn't go it's outside the promised land he's supposed to go where? you remember the name of the place where Jacob's supposed to go? starts with a B Bethel Bethel yeah, that's where he's supposed to go. Now, why not just say it? You know, God told me I got to go to Bethel, so I can't come with you. I, well, anyway, it is what it is. Esau goes, and we will only see Esau uh, one more time in Scripture. That will be in the 35th chapter at the funeral of Jacob, I mean, of um, Isaac. And then in the genealogical verses in chapter 36, he will be named. But otherwise, that's it for Esau so Jacob is heading in the right direction but here is a problem that comes up immediately Jacob goes to Sukkot where is he supposed to go? Bethel he goes to Sukkot Um, it's like two steps forward one step back or one step forward and two steps back he didn't go where he was supposed to go now To us, geographically and all, it just seems like a very minor thing. Um, Well, you know, big deal. The only problem is God is the one who said go to Bethel, and Jacob didn't go there. Now, here's an advance notice if you haven't read the text lately that's coming up. Jacob's going to pay dearly. He's going to pay dearly for not being totally obedient to God. So why not go to Bethel? I can't read his mind. You can ask him someday if you like. Verse 18. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. So you see what's happening here? You don't get your money out of your wallet and pay for land that you're only going to stay there for a night or two. He's planning to stay. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which literally means um, El is the God of Israel or Mighty is the God of Israel. Mighty is the God of Israel. So he stays there, goes to Shechem, heading in the right direction, not far enough, incomplete obedience. He sets up an altar at Shechem, and the mighty God is the God of Israel, is the place that he names it, but this is halfway obedience, and if you don't think about it, you kind of miss out on that. Um, So you ask the question, why does it matter? I mean... This place called Shechem is 20 miles from Bethel. 20 miles. not far. How far is it to Clean? Is that about right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not far. I mean, isn't that close enough? Well, here's the problem. Obey God always completely. Uh, that's what we're supposed to do. Obey God always completely. Full obedience is required. So staying in Shechem will result. So you can hold on to your seat because we're headed to some tough stuff. Staying in Shechem will result in the rape of his only daughter. The kill, a killing spree by some of his sons. And Israel, Jacob, Israel, will become a stench in the land of El Eloh Israel. It's a delusion to think partial obedience is obedience. Obey God completely. Jacob will eventually go to Bethel, but he will go chastened. So now we come to chapter 34, and I've entitled it, Obedience Must Be 100%. This brings conviction to my heart, because there are times when I've partially obeyed God and thought, that'll be enough. God will be okay with partial obedience. no. When God says, this is what I want you to do, he doesn't want you, if he says go to the 50-yard line, he doesn't want you to stop at the 40, go all the way to the 50-yard line. So, God had told Jacob to go to Bethel to live, instead, he spent lots of time in Sukkot and then settled in Shechem, 20 miles, 20 miles, so close, 20 miles. Now, why did he stay there? Um. The Bible doesn't say, but uh, when you study the situation, I think he was seeing dollar signs, or maybe I should say shekel signs. Um, Shechem was a very prosperous area at that time. Uh, So it looks like almost in retrospect a a monetary decision, and it ends up costing Jacob plenty. Because obedience can never be partial. It must be 100%. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. This is not pleasant. And I, I don't know any other way to say it. It's not pleasant. But we've got to read it. So just hang on to your seat, okay? Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. That doesn't go together, but we're going to explain it in a minute. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile... Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. So word got to them before Jacob got to tell them. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. And we would add an absolutely amen to that. So here's Jacob's only daughter, the child of Leah. Leah likely not loved like Joseph was loved Leah was not loved like Rachel was loved nor were her children loved like Joseph was loved the language of verse 1 in Hebrew carries with it a sense of impropriety, in other words Dinah should not have gone out by herself now that is not to say any of the blame for what happens goes to her. Absolutely not. Nevertheless, girls of marriageable age were not permitted in that society to leave the tents of her people without a chaperone. A little interesting tidbit of history. Apparently, she did not tell Leah and she certainly did not tell Jacob. She just went. So Shechem saw her, and he wanted her, and he seized her, and he lay with her, and he humiliated her. And the words in the Hebrew text, as we read them, carry with it the idea of progressive progressive words showing a progression of brutality. I mean, it just it started bad, and it got worse. Uh, so there's no way to look at this except this is awful. Then Shechem is consumed by his desire for Dinah, and he fell in love with her if he had any comprehension of what love is all about, which I think is open to question, but he now wants to marry her. Now, that didn't happen in five minutes. Understand, she is a um, hostage of Shechem's, so this may have happened over a period of days or even weeks. We don't know for sure. We know when the young men would go out to the fields, it would often be an extended period of time before they would come in. So it could have been easily at least a week. Dinah remains captive of Shechem. And whether Shechem understood love or not, I don't know, but he did decide that he wanted this to be his wife. He wanted Dinah to be his wife. So we look carefully at the response of the family of Jacob and Jacob himself at first Jacob does nothing at least for the moment now um, there's all kinds of ways to look at that some would say well Jacob didn't want to rush off by himself and try to do something yeah that wouldn't have made much sense what I don't understand is why he didn't go immediately to his son and say here's what happened instead he stayed home and he waited until they came in which was probably at least several days But when they heard, and they heard while they were still out working, somebody took the word out to them. Um, It makes Jacob look kind of apathetic to me. I I mean, as a father, what would you have done? I, I can't imagine sitting in the tent. I just can't. But the word reaches the sons of Jacob, and they are really upset. They are furious. So in the meantime, we find that Shechem's father, Hamor, comes to talk with Jacob. He probably sees the volatility of all of this. Plus, his son says, I want this woman for my wife. So Hamor is going to try to see what he can do to make all this okay. So we look at verse 8. Esau asked, oops, wrong chapter, verse 8. There we go. Look at the last chapter. Verse 8. But Hamor said to them, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. That really isn't the way I would have started that conversation. I think I would have said, I am so, so sorry for what my son is doing. I beg your forgiveness. Instead, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Oh, brother. Please give her to him as his wife. Then look at how he expands the invitation. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I will pay whatever you ask. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Nowhere in there did he apologize. Verse 13. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father, Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to all of us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. Kumbaya around the fireplace. <laughs> but if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Remember, they're speaking deceitfully. Their proposals seem good to Hamor and his son Shechem. I can't believe that, but that's what what exactly true. The young man who was the most honored of all his father's family lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters. They can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, now here is bottom line, you knew the money would come in somewhere, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let's all agree to their terms, and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Uh, was not in the uh, Scott and White Hospital either. <laughs> it was with crude tools. So I'll leave the rest of your imagination, but I guarantee you it was not a pretty sight. So uh, the pagan, he's obviously pagan. Just read the text. Hamor, Shechem, uh, they make a pagan proposal. Hamor doesn't admit any wrong in what was done to Dinah, doesn't ask forgiveness for his son, doesn't mention that Dinah's still at our house, our tent. She's a hostage at Shechem's tent, but he appears to want to sue the waters and get Dinah for his daughter-in-law, and there's a monetary purpose behind it. So he makes a rather extraordinary financial offer, property, grazing rights, freedom to move around live anywhere you want. In other words, what Hamor was offering is what God has already promised. God's already said I'm going to give all this to you. So, uh, so here we find Jacob being tempted to take a shortcut to what God promised he's going to do. It seemed to Hamor and Shechem that Jacob and his sons were all in on the deal. It looks like a sealed deal. So we see the response of the brothers. We'll do it if you all get circumcised. And they never intended to go in on the deal, but they've got a plan. It's amazing. So uh, we can't intermarry with you unless you become like us as children of Israel. And surprisingly, the Shechemites agree. They think they will benefit economically from this and their pain they're about to go through. But nobody here is really being sincere. Uh, Shechem, I mean, they intended to take advantage of this situation, and we're going to find out in a minute what Jacob and his what Jacob's sons have in mind. Jacob's boys are not into evangelism. Uh, you know, God always intended for Israel to be a missionary people. Missionary people show the one true living God. So Shechemites, if you become if you become followers of the one true living God, we've got a deal. They weren't into evangelism, but they were into genocide, and we're going to see what happens in just a minute. So let's look at the killing spree, and I think we can get most of that done today. So verse 25. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon, and Levi, you brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Now, I guarantee you every time I read this text, I have, I, my emotions run the gamut. Maybe yours do too. What I want to say about Simeon and Levi is way to go, boys. You avenged what happened to your sister. I mean, really, I just think, kill them, every one of them. Then on the other hand, um, living under the rule of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, does that measure up? You gonna, for what happened to Dinah, horrible, horrible, horrible. What do you kill, every single male in town? I mean, did every single male help to rape Dinah? I don't think so. It was the deed of Shechem, not all the men in town. So they go on a genocidal killing spree and kill all the men and take their wives, their children, and their flocks and all that for themselves. And so I look at the passage and I scratch my head and I say, God, I don't know that I understand all this, but boy, it's an amazing story. So let's think about it for a few moments and then we'll be finished. Dinah's Four Brothers by Leah are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. The two middle boys, Simeon and Levi, carry out the massacre. The Bible does not try to paint this pretty. It is a cold, calculated, murderous spree, way beyond eye for eye and tooth for tooth. The third day after the circumcision, crudely done, was the worst day for Pain. You know, I think they still say today, third day after surgery is worse, something like that. Then it starts to get better. I, I don't know. But but Simeon and Levi knew that the men of Shechem were hurting and were defenseless. And so they made their move. And they went house to house or tent to tent. And it was just a slaughter. And the other brothers, lest you think they were innocent in all this, they swoop in and help carry off the wealth. Jacob is not happy. Why? You make me odious in in the eyes of the people who live in this land and we're outnumbered. Now, does he anywhere say, boys, this was wrong? Nope. He just says, "Does, does anywhere he say, guys, you overreacted? Nope. And he never expresses any sympathy for Dinah. Now, I'm not, Saying there wasn't some in his heart. I'm sure there was, but we don't read about it. And in chapter 49 of Genesis, I put down in the right hand corner there, in chapter 49 of Genesis, verses 5 through 7, when Jacob on his deathbed is blessing his sons, when he comes to Simeon and Levi, here's what he says Simeon and Levi are brothers, and there's a dash, kind of like He's thinking about it. And Jacob says, Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they please. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel now. One day we'll get to chapter 49, and we'll deal with that in detail. But the boys have a response back to their father, and it is not respectful, nor was it intended to be. At the end of the verse, chapter 34, they shout back at their father, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? And the answer to that question is, No, he shouldn't have. No, he shouldn't have. So, in spite of mass murder, Simeon and Levi attempt to assume the moral high ground. Yeah. We did the right thing. He did the wrong thing. Well, here's where I want to end up. You can think whatever you want to think about Jacob, about... Shechem about the boys and the slaughter and all that. But here's the lesson I want us to learn. This need never have happened. If Jacob had obeyed 100% and gone to Bethel instead of staying in Shechem this would never have happened. Now he will go to Bethel. And we'll pick up with that as we move along. Father, I pray that from this uh, story of death and, and disaster and rape and mistreatment and abuse, that we will see the large picture of what it means to obey you. And that we will always, in every way and every time, obey you completely. Not partially, but totally and completely. And that I pray we would do that even this day, in Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you. See you next uh, time, January of the ninth. If I don't see you before Christmas, then have a wonderful Christmas with uh, family and friends.